0: Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host,
1: Karen Greenhouse. Today, we are excited to have Dr. Pamela Seda with us. And she is the owner of Seda Educational Consulting, and she has been an educator for over 30 years. Um, she got her doctorate from Georgia State University. And we're here to really kind of discuss with her her framework called ICU Care. Um, and it is for creating mathematics achievement for the underrepresented groups. And so I'm really excited to have Pamela here. She was part of the Casio Education um, Equity and Education Series webinars that we did. And in listening to her, I was really interested in what she had to share and about her framework. And so she was gracious enough to agree to join us on our podcast. So welcome, Dr. Seda. And I'm going to let you expand a little bit more on what you do currently. I know you're teaching, but also, you know, um, about your educational consulting. So just if you could give a little bit more of an introduction to yourself, that would be fantastic.
2: Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Um, I am currently a math coordinator for Griffin Spalding County Schools. I had been teaching for four years and I've been out of the classroom a little over a year, a year and a half now, and I became the math coordinator school district right south of Atlanta as well as um, my educational consulting company. I sell some card games and I provide professional development, things like the webinar that I did with Casio. So um, I'm kind of really my educational consulting is more of a side gig now because I'm really trying to improve the math achievement in my school district. So it's a small district, a little less than 10,000 students. And so I am the only person in the math It's just me. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So that means my work is, (laughs) and I'm in charge for the K-12 curriculum. So it's me, and of course, I have to get help because I can't do it all by myself. But yeah, it's it's a daunting task.
1: And you've been doing that what a
2: year? Is that what you said? Year and a half. -hmm. Just a year and a half.
1: So then, uh, so I'm curious. So in your, I was looking on your, your educational consulting website, which by the way, everybody, we will share that link. But one of the things that was really interesting, I was reading about your dissertation, which was, I'm going to read this title here. It's quite long. Equity, Pedagogy in the Secondary Mathematics Classrooms of Three Pre-Service Teachers, which is basically, I think, if I'm understanding right, where you kind of created that instructional framework. And your focus was on um, the low status student. And so that was really interesting to me. And I know that's what you talked about in your webinar. And so in the district you're at, is that still, is that something that you're using? And maybe we should explain the framework first before we get into the question that I just asked.
2: Okay. So yes. So in my dissertation, I adapted a framework that actually came from the multicultural teacher education literature about these are the components that should be in a multicultural teacher education program. And so I actually duplicated a study where somebody else had taken that framework and had applied it to an ELA classroom. And so I took the same framework and I adapted it for a mathematics classroom. And so the pre-service teachers are student teachers. I actually had three student teachers. They were all assigned to the same school and I was a university supervisor. So they were, had been made aware of the framework they had gone through and done a diversity, um, aspect of their portfolio. So I was going to look and see which of their practices of that were they able to implement during their student teaching. After I graduated from my PhD program, I started sharing that framework with teachers in the district that I was working in at the time as an instructional coach. And one of my teachers said, this is really good, but... We need a way to remember it. You need to come up with an acronym for it. So I went back to the drawing board, and out came ICU Care. <laughs> yeah, it's a great acronym. Yeah, thank you. So in my school district, we um, I have shared it on several occasions. I've worked with teachers, and every opportunity that I get, I do connect the work we do to the ICU Care framework because really it is it's a lens. It's a way to to look at your math instruction so that you can have more equitable outcomes. It's not a program per se, but it is just a way to think about it. So like the first I is include others as experts. And that means teacher can't be the only expert in the room. And so I talk about in my framework, these are ways that we can make sure that students see themselves as experts, not only the teacher or not only the textbook. Um, there's critically conscious piece and that's understanding how stereotypes impact your students and being aware of those impacts and then committing to doing something about it. So that's the the critical conscious piece. And then the IC and then the U is understand your students well. That's all those relationship piece and the things that you do as a teacher to get to know your kids so that you can teach them better. Then it's ICUC. The second C is. Use culturally relevant curriculum, and that's those things that we as teachers do to help your kids see themselves in the curriculum and understand that mathematics is for them. Because representation does matter, and oftentimes students just perceive math as something that those weird guys would, you know— Albert Einstein, hair, look right, those nerdy people, and they don't think it has anything to do with them. So using culturally relevant curriculum, is those ways that we connect the curriculum to to them and they can see themselves.
0: Wait a minute, you mean that mathematics goes beyond dead white men?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So we got I, C, U, C, and then there's A, um the A and care, and that's assess, activate, and build on prior knowledge and that's coming with the idea that understand that nobody comes as a blank slate, kids have prior knowledge, and as an effective teacher figures out how to uncover that knowledge and use that knowledge to build upon um so that's the a and then there's the R which is release control, and that means. Uh, The teacher is not the center of the universe in the classroom.
1: (laughs) And that is a hard thing for teachers to let go of. Yes.
2: Yes, it is. We, you know, the bottom line is as teachers and I've been guilty, definitely I've been guilty, but you think, we kind of think that if we don't tell it to them, they won't get it. Like we have to tell them everything. And it's creating your environment in a way that you let go of some of the control so that they're actually free to learn some things on their own. It's it's giving them that opportunity of making sense and giving them that opportunity of discovering and having those aha moments. That's what release and control is about. And then that leads to the last one, because you can't release control unless you also have high expectations. And that last one is expect more. And um, we just oftentimes sell our kids short. We don't give them those opportunities to um, learn, especially kids who've had a, a history of underachievement. Sometimes we just think, oh, well, I've got to remediate them because they don't know this. And we focus so much on what kids don't know instead of what they do know and then use what they do know to fill in what, to get them where you want them to go. So that's the ICU care framework. And so it's a way of thinking about your instruction. And so when you have the curriculum and you're thinking about, you start thinking about, okay, how do I take this task and help my kids see themselves? How do I use what I know about my kids to help them learn the math? How can I um, create rigorous activities for them to do that really get them to engage in the mathematics? So it's a way to just think about instruction more holistically rather than what am I going to tell my kids about this math today?
0: All right. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try not to monopolize the conversation, but I have like 15 questions just based on what you went
2: through.
0: (laughs) So uh, I'm going to ask one and then I'm going to keep my mouth shut for a minute so that you can talk and then Greenhouse can ask her questions too. Oh, thanks, Tim. Uh, You know, I'm a nice guy like that. But uh, anyway, um, my first, so my first question for you is uh, if you would be willing to share maybe one or two stories of what you mean by stereotypes, you use the terms, use stereotypes as a, that's present in needing teachers, as educators needing to uh, be aware um, of those stereotypes. And I was just curious if you would share one or two examples that in your experience as as a consultant, as, as a leader um, that you have seen so that uh, we can have a concrete sense of what you mean by that.
2: Sure. So, you know, one of the most obvious stereotypes is that, um, black children just aren't interested in academics. Um, they're not as smart academically as other children. Um, we have girls just aren't as technically savvy as boys are. Um, Students who are from Hispanic backgrounds, they may not value education like other students do. Um, Asian students, if you're an Asian student, then you're going to automatically be good in mathematics. Black males are more aggressive. Black females, they may always have attitude. Those are a, a snippet of a lot of the stereotypes that people have about students of color, about English language learners, about girls, just a myriad of stereotypes around mathematics.
1: And could it also be the, okay, so you teach, a, quote, what they call the low achievement students, right? So that's almost a stereotype too, assuming that they are right not good at learning because of things. So I, I think a lot of teachers, well, my low level students can't do that because of that. Label that has been placed upon them, which I guess relates to your expecting more from students and, and really assessing what they do know instead of just assuming. So that's what I also see as a stereotype.
2: Well, you know, assumptions can come from stereotypes. Stereotypes are pretty much things that we ascribe to a group of people based on, you know, group beliefs or based on history. Assumptions oftentimes come out of those stereotypes. So If we see a student, I might see an individual student in my class who didn't turn an assignment in. Well, an assumption I may make is they were lazy. They don't care. Those are often assumptions that we make. Um, And oftentimes those assumptions can be based on a student's socioeconomic background or their race or their gender.
1: And then that sort of then Makes it so important to make sure you understand where they come from, because if you know maybe that that student is babysitting all their siblings because mom and dad are working at night, then you realize it's not that they're lazy. Maybe they're tired.
2: And even when we're talking about expecting more, you know, I have, I've raised four kids. I have four adult children and all of them were lazy. None of them wanted to clean up their room. <laughs> they don't want to clean up their room. That's what kids are. They don't want to clean up their room. Yeah. I, as the adult, know, okay, you're not going to want to clean up your room. And if I say uh, you have to have your room clean before you come downstairs for breakfast, I know that they're going to throw everything in the closet just so that they can come downstairs and eat breakfast. I know that. (laughs) 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 You know, that's the thing. That's just a part. It's a part of human nature. So we learn how to deal with it. And because I know my kids, I know how to deal with that. I know, okay, I'm going to inspect the closet. I already know what you're going to do. So one of the things I used to do with my kids, I had chore lists. So I had this list of, I still have that list taped on the inside of the cabinet door above the dishwasher. These are the steps to washing the dishes. And it was inside the cabinet And so they knew, and it said, do steps one through eight before, step nine was do steps one through eight before you
0: leave the kitchen. You are a wise woman, Dr. Seda. You are a wise, a wise woman.
2: I mean, it's just a part of, it's just a part of learning that's, and it's, it's our attitudes, you know, towards when kids are growing in in maturity or it's our attitudes towards it that really is what makes the difference.
1: So how do you help a a a teacher recognize and, and more importantly, if let's say they recognize it, but how do they deal with that? Like, how do they change their behaviors? Because obviously if they have these stereotypes, whether they're, they're aware of it or not, it is impacting how they're teaching and interacting with the students.
2: Right. And so that's why I think, um, out of, even though it's ICU care and the first C is the second principle, I think criti- being critically conscious Is really the prerequisite for the rest of them. Being critically conscious is, okay, how do stereotypes impact my students? And then committing to doing something about it. I think that that commitment piece is really, really important because the reality is we all have blind spots and we really do need our students to help us become better teachers. We can't do it without them. We can't even become better teachers even without other colleagues because we just can't see everything that we're doing. So in my book that's getting ready to come out in the spring.
0: woo yes. the Woo-woo, there we go.
2: <laughs> it's going to come out in the spring. Um, we talk about, we share stories. We share our personal stories. My co-author is Kendall Brown. He's executive director of the California Mathematics Project at UCLA. And we share stories about our experiences. And so, um, in expecting more, I share the story about a teacher that I was working with. We were actually, I actually used to be instructional coach at a truancy school that was in my district. So pretty much, you know, all the kids were there either by court order, they had parole officers. Some of them had ankle bracelets. It was, you know, a a different environment. Um, and I was the math coach to work with, um, the one math teacher that, that was there. And I remember that he was getting ready to do something on graphing. And I said, Well, let me try something first. I said, let's pull out these. They had graphing calculators that were still in the plastic. They had never even been opened. And I said, Well, let's let's try something with the graphing calculator. He said, No, no, I don't, I don't want them to have the calculator till they know how to do it by hand first. And I just said, Trust me. I need you to trust me. He says, Okay, so I pulled out the graphing calculators. I said, hey, y'all, I need y'all's help. We got these calculators here. I need you to help me figure out how to use them. It's like, okay, let's go ahead and put the batteries in them. So they helped me cut them open, and we put all the batteries in. And I gave them an activity where they got to play around and put some ordered pairs in and graph it. And try. And it was amazing the amount of mathematics they were able to learn. Just they didn't realize I was teaching a lesson. They were helping me, right? Right. And, and the teacher just looked at it and he was like, I see what you were saying now. He was really shocked at the level of engagement and what the kids were able to learn in an activity where we were just, you know, discovering and playing around and trying some things.
0: Dr. Seid, I have a question. This this is me, True Confessions of a Struggling Math Teacher, my my personal question.
1: That is your book, yeah.
0: It's my book, and <laughs> it's it's coming to reality right as we speak. So one of the things that you said that struck me, and I, I've heard it before, this idea of giving students more ownership of the instructional experience, and I'm only going to speak for myself here and not others in that. So this year I teach a, a pre-calculus class at a school that does lots of tracking. So I teach the low-level pre-calculus students, so lots of those stereotypes you mentioned are present in my class. But what I struggle with, and so I would love your advice, is I'm all in, philosophically, with what you're saying about giving kids ownership. My experience, or at least my perceived experience, to be clear, is that the students now, they're 11th graders, some of them are seniors, who have had years of passive learning. And that's what they want from me. Like they don't want, any, they don't want any part of it. So I'm just curious, as a as a leader in all the many roles you've had in leadership, uh, what advice you would give a teacher like me? Is like, yeah, I'm all for it. What do I do to help get the kids off the schneid, so to speak? And have a desire to become an active owner and part of the instructional process.
2: I totally feel you. You are exactly right. My last year in the classroom, which was just a year and a half ago, I was teaching pre calculus and algebra one. <laughs> I had ninth graders and I had 12th graders. And so I totally get it. So the first piece of advice I will give to you is it's something that you have to do with your students and not to your students. You have to help them understand where you're going and what you're trying to do, because it will not work otherwise. So, I mean, I'm quite sure you're familiar with you know, standards-based tasks and student centers task and having kids engage in problem-based learning, things like that. But most of the times I, I found out that when my kids asked me a question and I followed it up with a question, they would look at me and say, you don't want to help me. (laughs) That's how they looked at it. It was like, I'm just, they saw as me as banning them, me not wanting to help them. So one of the things that I I dawned on me was I have to help my kids, my students know where I'm going. So one of the things I did is I actually shared, I created a student version of the ICU care principles. And it was like, what is their role? Um, in including others as experts and expecting more, And so I created a student version and then every chance they got, we kind of reflected on the student version. So that was one thing I did. The other thing I think I did that to me made the biggest impact was I realized that most of my instruction was me being a GPS step by step right you step by left here turn right here go this many miles you're going to turn left gps and you get exactly where you're supposed to go but the problem is people who are directionally challenged like i am if i had to go by there again the next time it's going to take me like three or four times using the gps before i can get to that place by myself and so what i began to realize was i need to stop gpsing my students and when I told my students, don't let anybody GPS you, what they came to understand what that means is you should never do something and follow instructions that you don't understand because they all have an experience that they can say that the GPS led them astray. Have y'all seen that Geico commercial where it's the great penguin migration and the guys is, the GPS says 90 miles to you know, your destination and the guy was like, huh, oh, man. We're, we're never going to get to, you know, wear a the hibernate or something like that. And the guy says, nope, nope, I'm going to follow my instincts. I haven't seen that one. You, it's on YouTube. Just say the Great Penguin Migration, Geico. There
0: you go. Another link, another link for the show notes.
2: <laughs> and so I showed it to my students and they really got it because they can all identify with the time when the GPS led them astray and i said what i want you to do is to be able to get you there but building on your own internal sense of direction your own sense of mathematics so it's not that i want don't want to help you or that you should never get a help but you should never do something and just follow directions that don't make sense to you and so i knew that i that they had really had really got it when i was giving some instructions to one of my students she said don't gps me and i was like Oops, I'm sorry. You're right. (laughs) I had become overly directive and she corrected me. And I was like, they got it. They've bought in.
1: That to me really kind of relates to that uh, A in your ICU care where you're accessing. I think I'm saying that right.
2: Assess, activate and build on prior knowledge. Yes.
1: Yeah. Prior knowledge is, it's one of the things I teach at Drexel um, and I teach, you know, teachers getting their masters. And that's one of the things I said, you don't assume that your students don't know anything. I go figure out what they know by letting them try it without telling them what to do. And they have the hardest time with that without letting go. And I think teachers are trained to, because we do know the end result. And I always blame standardized testing for this, is we know what we want them to be able to do, the most efficient method. But Sometimes a different method, a kid may understand completely if they use their own method, and that's what we have to let go of. So to me, it's all kind
0: of
2: connected. Yeah, exactly.
0: And, but Dr. Seda, to your point, you also have to create the culture where students are willing to do that Yes. initial foray. I mean, I mean there's all sorts of great stuff out there to do that. There's like notice and wonder, as I know, as a, a common strategy used now. There are things out there, but you have to provide a platform where students feel comfortable and confident to do that. And and to to the point you're both making, I think we live in an environment where too many math classes, students are trying to guess at what the teacher is thinking. To use your metaphor, reverse GPSing, like, okay, well, what is the GPS GPS saying I'm supposed to, where am I supposed to turn here? I mean, and that's honestly one of the things I struggle with, back to my question before, is how do I create a culture where to overcome years of prescriptive, my goal when I'm asked a question is to tell the teacher what he or she wants to hear. I mean, it's a challenge.
2: So you have to create that risk-free environment. Yeah, like notice and wonder. You have to, you know, I I remember I totally changed my warm-ups to where they're not right or wrong problems anymore. There, There were always, here's a picture, what do you notice? It could even be a problem all the way worked out. Tell me three things that you see and ask me a question. That's how I would open up the lesson. That's my variation of notice and wonder because sometimes my students would give me really crazy stuff. <laughs> so I kind of modified notice to wonder. So like, tell me three things, write down three things that you notice about this or five things and then ask me a question about it.
0: I just did that. I did a notice and wonder with a picture of a boathouse for a lesson on symmetric triangles. And the notices I got, the wonders I got were, how much does that house cost? Can you really park boats (laughs) at the house? I wonder how much money the people who live there make. Those are the (laughs) wonderings I got.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Sometimes you have to help them focus them a little bit.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this is all well and good, but then how do you help, you know, teachers are just, so constrained a lot of times by the mandated curriculum and the pacing, and the you must complete this content by this date, and make sure students can do this. And I think that's why a lot of teachers are so afraid of this whole idea of being culturally responsive and and changing, not changing a curriculum, but making sure the problems you're giving are uh, appropriate for your students and and those types of things, because they're afraid to break out of their prescribed curriculum and pacing that they have been to. So how do you how do you
2: deal with that? So it's you got to take baby steps. You got to take baby steps. So what I first suggest is if we're talking about the culturally relevant piece, using culturally relevant curriculum, first thing I say, first make sure that you're using a good rigorous task, whether it's culturally relevant or not, make sure you're using a good robust standards aligned task. That's where you start. Then you can for first baby step might be to change the names in the problems to your students. My students used to love that. I would give tests and quizzes and make sure the kids who are in the class that their names are on the test. It just naturally engaged them. That's just one little baby step to take. And then the next step I might take is just create a context around the mathematics that they would normally do. That's interesting to them. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was working on a third grade fractions unit and we already have, um, these tasks and I would say, okay, what can I do to make this a little more culturally relevant? And so I had the math problems already there. So I remembered that there was a Olympic park that was in our, in our district in the city of Griffin. And it was called Wyoming Tyus Olympic Park. And I was like, who's Wyoming Tias? I have no idea. I did some research. She has a wonderful story. Uh, she she competed in the Olympics in 1964 at the age of 19, won uh, the Olympic gold medal for the 100. And then she did a repeat. She was the first Olympic male, uh, athlete to actually do a repeat in the 100 in 1968. African-American woman. And she, I don't know if you remember, but 1968 was also the, the Olympics that was in Mexico, where there was a lot of protest and things like that. And race fists, right? The race fists. And so she talked about, she shared how in her autobiography about how several of the Black athletes were saying, what are we going to do to protest? And they could never agree. So they all just decided to do their own way of protesting. So instead of wearing her uniform shorts, she so chose to wear Black shorts. So I put all that in the story. And then the math was Okay, we have this park and you have to, because the math was you're putting some things on a number line. Well, the number line just became the distance between two park benches at this Olympic park. I just created this whole scenario around it. And it was just, I was really engaged just to even learning. And so this is just this park, it's nearby. It's something that kids care about. And so I just decided to change the context to make it something that kids could identify with that they care about. And then I still think that's a a second step. And then probably the larger step would be after you take those baby steps, then maybe look at problems that are in the area. What are some things that kids can do to actually solve a problem? Because math should be seen as a tool, a tool to solve problems. And so that's one one of the things that I did when I was teaching high school kids. I actually started as a ninth grade project, but I also did it with a 12th grade class that was, it was an application like course. It was an alternate to pre-calculus. But um, the project that I did was I looked at the test scores in our district. We had like 23 high schools in the district and we looked at the content, the proficiency scores, and we saw Looked at the demographics and see what are the percentage of Black students at each of these schools. And we said, let's see if there's a correlation between the percentage of Black students and their content mastery. And I was actually teaching a unit on statistics, and they had to do linear regressions and correlations. And so this was a context that meant something to them. They became familiar with, for them, for the first time, they had just never even thought about the demographics of schools in their districts. And after we did the mathematics, created the graphs, I asked them to reflect and say, okay, where does our school fit? Are we above the line? Are we below the line? Why do you think we are where we are? What advice would you give to students who are taking this test? Uh, What advice would you give to teachers in the department? And what advice would you give to the administration now that you've analyzed this data? And I actually shared the data with my department as well as our school administration so that they saw that mathematics is not something that's just you have to do to get a diploma, but it really is a tool to to be able to solve problems in the world. So I kind of call that social justice mathematics, which can be very engaging, um, but I, I would take several other steps before I could get to the social justice
1: yeah, I was just thinking like uh, some teachers listening now might think, oh my gosh, I am have to rewrite my whole curriculum or, or go on off the page. It actually reminds me, we um, interviewed, I don't know if you know Ken Shelton, um, but he told a similar thing where he just basically took some data from where they lived and had the students explore it and really expand on it. And that just seems so much more interesting than what we teach from a textbook. And I wish that we would all teach that way, but I don't know how we can make that change. And I know it's daunting for many teachers.
2: Well, we have to divide and conquer and share. You know, I I can't as a teacher change my whole curriculum, but I can do one problem. Right. And maybe another teacher can do another problem. And we may have at the end of one unit, we may have three different new problems. And then the next year we can have three more. We just do it in bite-sized
0: pieces. Uh, I did want to ask the question because your point, your response is great because I was going to say the same thing Karen did. What are you, like, that's... Um, I mean, that's phenomenal and very hyper local, which is great. but to the classroom teacher who's already feeling somewhat overwhelmed, that could be like, all okay, right, now, how does that work? so i I appreciate and uh, the response you just gave. but um, do you have sort of like you you talked about quality tasks um and maybe tasks that could be, Changed versus written or modified. So I, I'm going to throw the door open to get, like, do you want to tout? Like, are there, as an instructional leader currently in a district, are there resources that you consider sort of, sort of go tos? Like, this is a good place to start
2: for just good standards based tasks? Yes. Um, so some of the places that I go to is I use the math, the Mars tasks, the mathematics assessment project, the Mars tasks. That's a good place. The uh, achieve the core.org. They have some great tasks. Um, illustrative math. Right. I love those.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, you ding, ding, ding. You went for a bit. I, <laughs> I, I used to work there. That's the only reason she says that. So I'm a fan. Totally biased.
2: You know, I, I use those. Yes, use those. Um, so, you know, I know Kendall Hunt has taken the illustrative math curriculum. I know they have a curriculum and they've put all that online. So those are some places that I, I've gone to. And even the exemplars, they have, um, they have great tasks that along with student work. And three-act and three tasks, those are, you know, so those are good places to start with good, strong tasks, right? And then, like I said, take those baby steps and just figure out, easy thing is to take that task and put your kids' names in them.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that. Um, and you get brownie points. You've now mentioned two of my previous three employers. So
2: oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I agree. well, I, those are fine. <laughs> fine places <to>
2: <laughs> Yeah, those are those are places that I mean, because I'm in the midst of it. I'm think I'm, I I'm having to currently rewrite our third revise our third grade units because my unit writers moved to special ed. So. She's no longer teaching math, and I couldn't find anybody else to do it. So now I'm writing third grade units. But it's great because I'm really in the trenches, and I feel like you know I'm in a better place to see how hard this is and really able to show teachers how to do it as
0: well. I will give a shout-out. Sorry, but I wanted to give a shout-out to one more place to search for K-12 curriculum that's open source. The uh, San Francisco Unified went through a process a couple of years ago with many of the values that Dr. Sita, you're uh, promoting here and espousing. Uh, they have an open source curriculum that they've created that uh, also um, has tasks and really gets down, uh, if you want it, to, to a much granular level. Like, I'm looking for something. I mean, there's things that currently a lot of teachers go to Teacher Pays Teachers There's all these sources that you're talking about that Greenhouse is talking about. There's so many places to get these high quality experiences. You really don't have to write from scratch because my bias as someone who's been publishing for many years has been, I mean, not just a time and an effort thing. And I have all the admiration in the world for the profession of teaching and the work they do as teachers. But most teachers, we don't learn curriculum writing when we're learning to teach. And so writing tasks, writing curriculum, is a, it requires a, a, an expertise um, and an experience that, I mean, some teachers have a natural gift for it, and that's awesome. But a lot of us, it's not that we're bad teachers. We just never learn. Like, that's not a skill that we were trained on. So let's go to the places where people who have been trained have done um, some phenomenal work, and all the resources we're talking about are included there.
2: I'm um, definitely a right, big believer in not recreating the wheel.
0: So my next question to just change topics a little bit is I'm curious, we've been talking to several people about managing teaching during the pandemic. So I'm, I just wanted to open the floor and ask you to share, like, what are some of the strategies, tools that you're using in your current role to help teachers manage like how do you do these things how do you follow these this paradigm that uh, you you've built and are promoting um, in a time of a unique instructional experience
2: so i i have basically told my teachers use what we know about good instruction whatever we feel like is good instruction use what we know about good instruction and figure out to the best of our abilities how to do that online it's not about just giving kids assignments. It's about engaging kids with the mathematics. So one of the things that has been so exciting to me is just how, because the entire world, right, is all virtual, is online. There is just such a wealth of resources of things that people have created and done and just put things on online. You know, so I think about um, when we were talking about creating those low-risk environments, right, to help kids be willing to engage. So I think about open-middle. Open-middle are those types of problems where they're open-ended, they're they're low-risk, but they're really higher-order thinking. And then there have been people who've just created, okay, I've got all of third grade in a Google Slides, and we're a Google district. And I was like, okay, let's take that. Giving um, students the opportunity to look at, and learn from other student work. I think about how that's a powerful practice about students being able to see other people's work, have some ideas, provide feedback Um, and Desmos Does, you know, a wonderful job at that where that's one of the most powerful things I think about that tool is that you not only get to put your answers in there, but you can actually learn from other people's responses, adapt your responses, things like that. Um, the major thing that I've just tried is to tell my teachers is it's your relationship with those kids that's going to matter. That's what's going to matter and and however you can use technology to maintain relationships as much as possible that's that's what's gonna make the difference between you know whether they're hanging on or you know you lose kids to math forever it It really is, but it's no different than even before it really it has to do with our attitude do we do we automatically assume because a kid doesn't turn in an online assignment they're lazy. They just don't care. I mean, all these same stereotypes, things that were already in play before the pandemic, they're just magnified afterwards. But I've just been really, really amazed at the adaptability and um, the creativity that teachers have been able to engage in during this pandemic. And I try to support them as much as I can.
1: Yeah. So do you think that this, like, if we ever go back to, you know, like a face-to-face or whatever, do you think some of the things that they are doing that are creative and really embracing these uh, different ways of reaching their students, if that will continue in, in in a face-to-face environment or if they'll go back to their, you know, traditional ways or whatever?
2: Um, I think those who, well, put this way, I'll just say this. Regarding using technology, I don't think we're going back. There I had especially high school teachers, like sometimes the higher you go up, the more stringent you may be. There were teachers that we have been trying to get to use technology yeah. for the longest, especially, but you have these staunch content experts. They're like
0: one of one of those.
2: They just weren't gonna do it. Well, they've taken the blue pill or is it the red pill which is the pill from the matrix (laughs) they've taken the pill whichever pill the the color right and so yes yes it's the matrix and they and they see now they see the possibilities and so i don't think there's any going back there's there's any going back as far as uh using google classroom and using desmos and
1: And classpad.net have you tried that
2: no no i haven't tried that one yet
1: that's just another free online math tool that is a great resource as well.
0: Just for the record, I'm a big fan. I use it in my classroom almost every day. You know, I thought a few minutes ago, a little while ago, greenhouse, you were going to ask if she would retell the if she would retell the story about the calculators, but include that they were Casio calculators that she took out of the plastic.
2: Well, then I sh- I won't tell you that I just ordered some TI 84s for my. I won't tell you that. <laughs> yeah, don't
1: tell me that. Oh my, no. We're not even going to
0: Okay, there. all right, moving on, moving, moving on, moving on.
2: <laughs> you can edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: moving on. Um, so I have been, um, again, I teach teachers that are in the classroom. So I get a lot of feedback in my classes from what's happening. And I've been excited of some of the things they're trying and they're being a little bit more, you know, creative, I guess, in the way they're teaching and they're being a little bit more understanding of, you know, not trying to push and follow their pacing as much, which is such a a struggle with a lot of these teachers because they're so pressured by standardized testing. So do you think in this time that we're going through that maybe that pressure will be taken off or that things will change about standardized testing because everyone's realizing that We need to let them have that problem-solving experience and that culturally relevant, rigorous type of problem-solving that doesn't necessarily follow the pacing or the most efficient one answer method.
2: I'm hopeful. That's all I can say. (laughs) I'm hopeful that that would be the case. Um, I don't know, given it's just somehow math became political. (laughs) And so... Given the political climate, I, you know, it things are up in the air. I don't, I don't know. It's just everything's so so divisive. And something as simple as our like I'll just speak like in the state of Georgia, our state superintendent made the recommendation that the standardized tests that we give this year only count will count for 0% because we have to give them. That's by law, we have to give the state test. Um, but his recommendation was okay, let me back up. So in March at the end of the year we submitted a waiver to the you know department of education right and so we were granted that waiver along with pretty much everybody else when schools closed to have to give state tests so we applied for another waiver for this school year because we're still in the pandemic right and so we applied and it was rejected so as a state we were not approved to administer to not administer our state have, So we had to administer them. So our state superintendent made the recommendation to our state board that, well, let's just count it 0%. We still will have this information. We can still use it to assess the quality of our program, but we, we won't use it to hurt kids, right? We'll hold kids harmless. And that was very controversial. And our state board did not approve yeah. it. no, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. And, they were, and just watching the board meeting, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, arguments on both sides. And so that even was controversial. Something as simple as in the midst of this pandemic, let's just count it as 0%. So that's just the climate of where things are right now. So I, I don't know, but I'm hopeful. And I all I can say is I get it. I understand. I don't know that standardized testing is gonna go away, ever go away anytime soon, but I do know that there is a shift and the emphasis is is waning, right? That 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 is is waning. And so one of the things at least I had started that process already before the pandemic hit was focusing on those big ideas. And so I created what I call the essential 20. And so no course has more than 20 essential standards. That's what I call them. And so it's focusing on those essential 20 that I, I felt like is, is going to help with the feeling like, oh, I got to cover everything. I got to cover everything. Now, it's, it's not saying there's only 20 things that you're doing because, for example, one of those essential standards might be that you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide fractions to solve word problems. But well, there's a lot in there, right? <laughs> <Standard. Yeah. laughs> right. It's it's a lot in there. Um but it's it but it's showing what the focus is. Is right. it's the work problems, right? It's not that if you're pressed for time then spend more of the time on the word problems aspect of it exactly, and not on all the drill and kill and make sure that, oh, I got to make sure they can do all the adding and subtracting. I got to give them all these worksheets first. And now that I've got them down, now I can have them solve word problems.
1: Exactly. It's it's almost like we do everything backwards. And that's what I try to tell my own students is they're like, well, I don't have time to do the word problems because I have to cover the material. I'm like, if you gave them one really high quality word problem, you would be doing five different math standards in that one problem instead of spending five days
2: on five different exactly.
1: content, right? And so it's changing a teacher's mindset.
2: Well I, I kind of helped them do that because I changed the curriculum, right? I changed the curriculum to reflect that. Yeah. I'm not asking the teachers to do that. I that's the work that I did. That's what I did when I was hunkered down. Quarantine, right? That's the work me and some teachers did, right? We focused, and and I did that from K, kindergarten through to uh, pre calculus for 14 different courses.
1: Wow.
0: Well, and hopefully the dynamic around uh, the requirement of standardized tests may change. Not that this is a political podcast, but in large thanks to your home state, we will have a new federal (laughs) education (laughs) (laughs) leadership here in the very near future.
1: Yes. That's right. You are in a politically charged... uh...
0: Very much so, yeah.
1: So, Tim, I know you haven't asked all your 15 questions.
0: Well, you touched on one of the questions I wanted to go down to, which is the curriculum road. I mean, that was, to me, a pertinent conversation. I guess, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Seda, as we've been talking to people and now, like I said, being back in the classroom, I have this sort of, for better or for worse, become very focused on the, okay, I'm actually trying to pull this off now. And what are the fundamental, like, philosophically, I am with you 100%. Um, I mean, everything its uh, everything you're saying resonates with me strongly. And just trying to figure out now as a practitioner, like, all right, how do you implement these things? Like, those are really great things to say. And I read blogs like, yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. Like, okay, how? Like, fundamentally, when I'm looking at my 20 pre-calculus students, um, I'm lucky I teach in a small school and 20 is my largest class. So I'm really lucky in that way. But uh, how do you implement and make real this paradigm that you're espousing. And so that's why I asked about curriculum and I asked about like the, how do we help students who have come to expect paradigm? Like how do we help them shift and, and have a desire to be part of that environment? But I think we've honestly, now I have my list in my head and then the the whole COVID thing. I am curious. um, So what model is your district using right now in terms of where are you guys at?
2: Right now we're in the hybrid model. Um, we started off all one hundred percent virtual. Um, we went to the hybrid model, which which we gave students who wanted to come face to face. So we have some who are still at home and some are in their class, so we have it socially distance. And we had schools are just doing things differently. Some schools divide it so that you have some teachers who are just virtual. Some teachers are just face to face. But I think the majority of our teachers, are doing both <laughs> with varying with varying degrees of success, and so we, as a curriculum department, have really been trying to provide support. We've had one-on-one meetings with every principal to seek out how's it going. We did a survey. We asked teachers what's going, where it's working well. We asked them to rate from one to five. You know, what's your experience? what's working well, what's not working well. And so we even looked, so teachers, there are some teachers who, you know, rated themselves a four or five, and then they just describe, okay, this is what's working. And so then we tried to see, okay, how can we leverage that for the teachers that are are struggling? So, I mean, we weren't just doing in general, we were actually looking at teachers and who had ones and twos to figure out, okay, what can we do to support them? And it wasn't just curriculum. We had our instructional technology department, you know, on these Zoom meetings. All of our meetings were Zoom meetings with the principals, right? Yeah, with the principals. So what we did have to have two schools right at the last week, they had to go back to virtual because of some um, exposures. Some teachers had some exposures to COVID. I think it was two teachers, several teachers had positive tests and they had, been in close proximity to other teachers. So they ended up um, having the kids go 100% virtual.
1: So I am curious, do you think that students are going to be ready for these assessments that now that they have to, they have to take them? So, I mean, do you feel that teachers are staying on track or is that not important? Because that to me seems like a huge stress for teaching in in the time of COVID.
2: So when you say ready, what does that mean, right? I don't think they've ever been ready because we've been furiously covering a material, covering, quote unquote, things that kids don't understand. So I don't think they've ever been ready. Now the question is, do I think teachers will, quote unquote, cover all the material that's going to be on the test? No, I don't think they're going to cover it all. I would rather, you know, them have... and I'm not going to say that they have a full understanding, but that's kind of why I identified those essential 20. If they can have a good understanding of those 20 things, I think they're going to be so much better off. You now, whether kids will still be able to master those 20 things, you know, I'm, I'm a realist and I know that a lot of teachers are just learning how to survive. And I just think we're going to have to be patient with ourselves and you know, people talking about, oh, our kids are behind. And I'm saying behind whom? Who were they behind? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. And so I think when we've beat COVID, if we use this time to really focus on real genuine learning, I think the kids would be just
0: fine.
1: I agree. I agree. And it's, it's, It's the adults that have to change, not expectations. Like what the behind is.
0: So I want to ask Dr. Seda because we had a little tech glitch there, and she had one more tip for helping get students engaged. So I want to hear it.
2: So this is something that I just stumbled across. Okay, so I told you I used to teach high school when I was last in the classroom, and for me, differentiating by having small groups and sitting with small groups that just didn't work for me because my students, as soon as I sat down and they didn't see me, they were off the chain. Oh, that's my opportunity to get off task. When they didn't see me, it was like, oh, I can start talking and get off task. That. that was just, and maybe your students aren't that way, but that's how my students were. So what I started doing was having my small groups at the front of the classroom so they could still see me. Still had a small group. But what I did was I would take up uh, a problem that they did uh on a scrap sheet of paper, it could have been a warm up or just uh, sometimes it just gave them a problem to do. And they just did it on some s- scrap piece of paper. And then I had them turn it in and I sorted it based on got it, almost got it, not yet. But what I found was I would just pull up, I would call out names. I'll pull up four kids up to the board at one time. And what I would do is I'd give somebody, I would say, who wants to do the first step? Nobody will want to do the first step. And I would just give the pen to somebody. I said, okay, do the first step. Now, mind you, they've all done the same problem and I've got these people together and they all pretty much kind of made the same mistake. So nobody knows how to do the problem. I gave my said, okay, do the first, do the first step. So they were And then I would say, stop, pass the pen. So they pass the pen to the next person. And the person would have to write something, build on what the other person did. And I just pretty much facilitated, I didn't tell them how to do anything. If they got stuck, I would kind of facilitate the conversation and say, hey, anybody have any idea what might be the next step? And they can kind of look at their pieces of paper. But what I found was they loved that. It was that small individual attention that they got their questions answered and they just really, really appreciated that. It wasn't one-on-one, but it felt like one-on-one help for them. They felt the power of figuring out the problems without me telling them. So what was the rest of the class doing? They were working on uh, some... It was probably during the the uh, group time where they were working on their assi- class assignment. I, I think it was after I had already taught the lesson. And so they were working on their class assignment. So I would pull up kids three or four at a time. I wouldn't have to like get through all the kids in that same day, but I was kind of strategic by looking at, I kind of oftentimes would start with problems that I saw that kids' mistakes were making that I say, oh, okay, I can just knock this out in a few minutes. This is just a little simple mistake that they're making. And so I might pull those four people up and then they would start, they could do it, but then they would kind of get stuck. And it was something that I could easily, those are might be the people who I started with. And then I might in the middle, put the kids who might have taken a little bit more time to address their misconceptions. Um but it was yeah, it was during the um work period time. During the work period time the rest of the students were working on on their work. So it's still my small group instruction, but I was at the front of the class. So and I would kind of be sideways so I could see what the class was doing as well as see what the students were doing and if I had to snap my fingers when I'd see somebody, <laughs> "Hey, get back on task." They it was just for them to know, "I'm I'm still watching you." I'm still aware of what's going on in the classroom while I was, while they were really working the problem, I wasn't doing it. I was just kind of there to facilitate if they got stuck or if nobody had anything to offer. But it was just the power of them being able to, oh, figure out their mistakes without me having to tell them. And that really learning and that discovering it on their own really is its own reward. They eventually got it. Cause at first they just wanted, why don't you just tell us how to do it? I mean, yes, they used to. But after I started talking about the GPS and helping them figure out on their own, they were like, Oh, go, go. They used to tell me they used to shoo me away because they wanted to figure out they, it it really learning really is its own reward. Sometimes you have to kind of like trick them into doing it at first. (laughs)
0: Well, they have to have an experience of success. I mean, not to get off into whole other topic about the whole idea of, of uh, low floor, high ceiling tasks. Yes. But if students have to feel like they have, that the potential for success is there for them to have the confidence and feel the ownership to tell you as a teacher, hey, let me figure this out.
2: Yeah, and, and the thing about even with the group, normally it's like the smart kid is the lower level kid and the low level kid feels very self-conscious because a smart kid is telling them. And what I would do is I would get four people up there and nobody knew how to do the problem. They all missed it. And so they're on equal, they're on equal status level here, but they all put the pieces together and they figure it out. And that is just powerful. Agreed.
1: And on that note, I want to thank you for sharing all of your amazing ideas. We really appreciate it, Doctor Seda, and everyone who is listening. We will have links to all of those resources that were mentioned, and the Seda Educational Consulting site and ICU Care. We'll have a little bit more of a
2: description of that. Yes, and and the van game, the van game is on my website as well. The card, math card game.
1: Awesome. And then honestly, give us the link to your book so that people can reach out and buy that as well.
2: Well, it's going to be a DBC publishing. We're still in the edits phase. So it won't be out till the spring. But it's DBC, Dave Burgess Consulting Publishers. They're the publisher.
1: Okay. And so thank you again so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I, I love listening to all of your great ideas and stories.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I uh, I keep saying this every time we talk to someone, but it's phenomenal having the opportunity to hear um, the expertise and experiences of, of experts such as yourself. Thank you so much for sharing.
2: Thank you. There
0: will always be those who scoff at intellectuals who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more
2: so today than ever before.